Good morning, everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano coming to you with a special edition of the Axe Podcast, a special episode for this week. And we're going to be talking about eating meat on Friday, when we can do it and when we shouldn't, and how this week is a special week in that regard to the normal church regulations on fasting and abstinence. And then we'll also hit on a couple of other We'll, we'll, you know, we'll circle back on a couple of other things to kind of tie up some loose ends on things we've talked about in some past episodes. And before we get to that, let's do this, uh, our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that by St. Joseph's intercession, your church may constantly watch over the unfolding of the mysteries of human salvation, whose beginnings you entrusted to his faithful care. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So yes, after I completed uh, the episode for this week, I realized that there's really, there was one big kind of space missing that I really should have talked about uh, in terms of uh, Lent and the liturgical year and, and the the practice of fasting and abstinence that we're asked to do during this time of year. As you know, Fridays during Lent are days when we're not supposed to eat meat. Okay, Meat defined as uh, beef, chicken, pork, poultry, game, you know, anything of that sort. Fish is allowed as a protein. And unlike our Greek brothers and sisters, uh, eggs and uh, dairy products are also allowed. Okay, there are uh, some uh, Orthodox churches, I'm guessing the whole, or I, I don't know if it extends to all the Orthodox churches, but generally speaking, the Orthodox churches, the, the abstinence is beyond meat. It's really anything that comes from, it's almost vegan really. It's very close to being vegan. Uh, and even during the year, this is something that's not uh, widely well known. Uh, the, the canon law of the church also states that all Fridays during the year are days when we should be abstaining from, from meat. Uh, the general perception is, is that abstinence is only during Lent. The, the difference is, is that during the year we can substitute other uh, penances for the abstaining from meat, where during Lent, it's a, it's a, the observance of abstinence is, is strictly enforced. Now, it happens during Lent that we have really two major feasts, uh, which is the, one is the Solemnity of St. Joseph, which occurs on March 19th, and then the Solemnity of the Annunciation of the Lord, which happens on the 25th. Now, a, a Solemnity, and both St. Joseph and the Annunciation are Solemnities, are the highest form of liturgical celebration. Okay, So, we kind of... I don't want to say break rules, but the, 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 
it's the wrong way of thinking of it. But like, for instance, uh, during Lent, uh, the uh, Gloria is not sung during the Sunday Mass. But we do sing the Gloria uh, during the Mass of St. Joseph and also on the Solemnity. Uh, the Creed is proclaimed at both those particular Masses. It's basically treated like a Sunday liturgy. Okay, so it's the highest form. And on a, on, remember the idea that, that on the Sundays of Lent, we don't count them as days of penance. Because a Sunday is always, whether it's Lent or any time of year, is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's resurrection. And so that is always observed as a solemnity. And so we, we, we don't fast on that day. And so when a feast day, a special feast day, a solemnity in particular, lands on a Friday of Lent, it is possible for the local bishop to uh, excuse the faithful from the obligation to abstain from meat. Now, as I'm recording this, it's St. Patrick's Day, and it's very common in many dioceses in the United States, especially in New York, where I grew up, that if during Lent, St. Patrick's Day landed on a Friday, again, the bishop would give a general dispensation from the law of abstaining from meat on the Friday so that people could have their corned beef and cabbage. Uh, because because he, because St. Patrick is the patronal feast of New York, and I'm not sure which other diocese in the, in the country. St. Joseph is the universal patron of the church, and his feast, again, when it lands on a Friday during Lent, that require, that we are, generally speaking, uh, uh, freed from that obligation, we are excused from that obligation to abstain from meat. Now, the only really Friday where this can't happen and doesn't happen is on Good Friday. And really, during... Uh, Holy Week itself. Now, I don't think that St. Joseph uh, gets affected by Holy Week. Uh, I don't think, anyway, that St. Joseph would, would land during Holy Week. But it's very common for the Annunciation to land during Holy Week. And if that happens, then usually the feast is moved to the to the first open day after Easter. Okay, So sometime in, in April. Uh, and if there's a special event, a special feast day that happens to land on Good Friday in a given year, again, there is no exemption given. So Good, Good Friday and Holy Week is sort of the only time when a, when a bishop couldn't give that uh, dispensation. There's a famous story about ugh, 15 years ago or so, maybe getting closer to 20 years ago, where uh, in Boston... Opening day at Fenway Park was landing on uh, Good Friday. And the team uh, asked the, the archbishop, uh, the cardinal archbishop there, for a dispensation from uh, the law of abstinence on that day. And the bishop said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it's Good Friday. <laughs> and, you know, some people were kind of, you know, 
scratching their head about that, but once you question whether you should be at a ball game on Good Friday anyway, and I am a big baseball fan. Not of the Red Sox, though, but because anybody knows I'm a Yankee fan, but even if it was the Yankees, uh, I don't know that Good Friday is a day to be going to the ballpark uh, anyway, but that's a whole other... Uh, that's all other story. So this Friday, the 19th of March, is the feast of St. Joseph. And so, yes, we are uh, dispensed for that day from the law of abstinence from meat. And some people question this. Well, you know, if, if this is a law, if, if, if God gave us this law, how can you dispense from it. And I think we have to kind of clarify two particular things. What scripture commands of us and what tradition witnesses to is that we are to do acts of penance. That we are to fast at times. That we are to pray and that we are to give alms. Okay, I'm not going to go through each uh, you know, place in scripture where this is mentioned, but I'm, I'm thinking uh, in my mind right now specifically of the Sermon on the Mount and the reading that we hear on Ash Wednesday, where our Lord in, on the sermon, during the Sermon on the Mount goes through how we should fast, how we should give alms, and how we should pray. And he's not commanding us to do those things, but he's taking for granted that that's what we're going to be doing in many ways because he is building on uh, the scriptural uh, precedents and, and the tradition that came before him. And so while in the, in the strict sense, he's not handing us a commandment, but again, he is sort of taking it for granted. That we fast, that we pray, that we give alms, again, is taken for granted. It is a precept of our faith. How we do that is left really up to the church and to a certain degree up to us. We, we don't need the church to tell us uh, when to fast in the sense of if I, for let's say for spiritual reasons, maybe I have a, a prayer intention uh, that I really want to focus on in a very particular way, or, you know, maybe uh, I, I feel called to fast in response to uh, an injustice that I want to see rectified, and I'm calling out to heaven <laughs> to, to rectify this. Uh, and I really make do penance for my own sins and for the sins of others as a way of, you know, uh, making either reparation for, for the offenses that were given and to plead to heaven for, you know, swift justice, I can do that. I don't need the local bishop to tell me to do that. But the church does, though, at times, tell us that, okay, on these days, we are setting them aside for this particular purpose. And when you really look at the law of the church, as it stands right now, it's not, it's, we're not overburdened with these things. It's essentially two days a year when we're mandated to fast. And it's the Fridays of Lent when we're absolutely 
mandated not to eat meat. And the rest of the Fridays were called on not to eat meat, but we could also, again, make a substitution depending on the, on the, local, uh, the local rules set up by the local bishops' conferences. Okay. This is not over. This is not burdensome. Uh, in under the old calendar, uh, there were fasting and abstinence days sprinkled throughout the calendar. Uh, in in the blog, I have an article from know, a number of years back on uh, what they call rogation days and ember days that were associated with the different times of the year and the changing of the seasons, where days of, of fasting and abstinence were, and particularly abstinence was connected to that. Those things have all been made, uh, they haven't been suppressed exactly, but they've all been made optional. And in most places they've fallen out of practice altogether. There's still some, especially uh, kind of rural or farming areas in the world where these traditions have, have continued, uh, but they're not mandated on us by the church. And so really, Again, it's only really two days during the the year when we're called to fast. And again, a select number of Fridays when we're called to abstain, really absolutely called to abstain from meat. Nonetheless, on the other Fridays of the year, we should be conscious of the need to offer some form of penance uh, in place of the eating of meat. And even in terms of the uh, the freedom we're being given on Friday to eat meat. Again, we're, we're encouraged to maybe take another day uh, during the week ahead and sort of swap out and use that as a day of abstinence in its place. Or again, perform some other act of penance. This is all linked to the loosening and binding powers given to the church, given to the apostles in particular, by Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives this power of loosening and binding specifically to Peter. Okay, what you know, after Peter makes his profession of faith, and Jesus says, Okay, Peter, uh, you've acknowledged me as the Messiah and the Son of God, and this was not knowledge given to you by human beings, but this is something that's been revealed to you by God, and blessed are you for that. And so I give you the keys to the kingdom, and you are the rock on which I will build my church, and I give you the keys to the kingdom, and that which you bind on earth shall be bound in, in heaven, and that which you loosen on earth shall be loosened in heaven. And later... Uh, he says the same thing to the, the disciples as a group, that again, there's going to be a certain power they have to make laws and to uh, kind of to excuse from particular laws of the church. And I, the, I know that the, the Matthew 18, where Jesus is speaking to the apostles, is usually um, seen in reference to excommunication. Uh, in terms of their power to to you know to exclude someone from the community or uh, admit them back in, but again in the in the broader sense it could also be seen that the, the church has been given 
through her apostles and the successors of the apostles, which are the who are the bishops, a certain authority to regulate the church's discipline. And, and this is another kind of concept we have to get our head around. There's doctrine, and there's certain uh, precepts of the church and laws of the church based on scripture and tradition. So again, as I said, that we fast, that we give alms, that we pray are precepts of the church that don't change, that come from God, but how we do those things to a certain degree and how, you know, and how they're regulated has been given to the church. So yes, if the local bishop uh, sees that on a particular Friday during Lent, it would be good for the you know the the, the spiritual well-being of the faithful to uh, to be you know re- released from that obligation uh, to abstain from meat on that particular day. He has the power to do it. He has the authority to do it. He doesn't have the authority to say that okay, we don't need to fast anymore. Fasting ever that fa- you know fasting now is passe and it's out of style. And, and really, it's, it's unnecessary. Therefore, I say from here on out, no more fasting ever for, for anybody. No, he, he couldn't do that. But he can, on a particular day, again, for a good reason, uh, give a, dis- a dispensation from, from that law. Uh, again, for, for some spiritual good of the people. And certainly, to celebrate the Feast of St. Joseph, is is a it, it is one of those moments, and uh, you know it, it's very important and very good that we do. We shouldn't feel bad about it, or we shouldn't wonder where you know by what authority does the church does that? No, the church does it because the church has been given that authority to do it and to make and to regulate those uh, uh, those particular rules and those particular practices and what we call disciplines. All right. So I'm going to leave that right there. But there's a couple other things I want to get to, and we'll get to that uh, right now. If you uh, remember a couple of episodes ago, I uh, spoke about uh, the three dystopian novels uh, from the 20th century, uh, two that are rather well-known and one that is is less known uh, outside of Catholic circles anyway. And even within Catholic circles, it's not particularly well-known today. Um a Brave New World by Huxley, uh, 1984 by Orwell, uh, but also uh, Robert Hugh Benson's, or Monsignor, excuse me, Robert Hugh Benson's uh, Lord of the World, which is, again, that uh, book from 1907, a novel looking about 100 years ahead at uh, what the world may look like if there were a communist takeover. And the, the th- I went back and kind of looked over the the first few chapters again and the, the the biggest thing that i noticed interestingly enough is that benson writing from in 1907 sort of takes for granted human progress you know the the, the arguments against socialism and communism that we have today is you know beyond the fact that philosophically it's they're just against uh, Christian belief. Uh, you know, communism particularly is atheistic uh, by nature, and uh, you know we we believe that it just has a view of human nature which is distorted, 
and by the placing of, of the economic above the spiritual is a distortion. This kind of distorts human nature and uh, really what the purpose of our life on earth is and tends toward totalitarianism and a kind of worship of the state. But you know, the other thing is that we believe that even if you want to take it on the material level, that these systems have never worked. These systems haven't worked in the past, and they don't work now. Uh, they've generally led to privations, and you know, far from uh, uh, being egalitarian, uh, there definitely was, especially in this old Soviet Union, there was the ruling class who benefited from what other, whatever economic uh, growth there was. And then there was the, the basically large uh, majority of, of people who, if not living in poverty, were definitely living in, in deprived situations, always being, being faced with food shortages. I, you know, my story is not unique that I'm about to tell. I've heard several people tell this, a variation of this story, uh, from per, from their own personal experiences dealing with people who came from uh, other uh, Eastern Bloc and and countries in the Soviet Union. Uh, we we knew a, a a Polish lady who came over and was living with you know, relatives of hers. We knew the relatives first, obviously, and then. You know, she came over, she was able to get out of Poland. This is the late 70s. This was before John Paul II was elected, because I know that talking with her, you know, right after the election, so this would have been around, you know, 19, you know, 77, 1976 or 1977, when she came over. And, you know, her first day going to an American supermarket, and standing in the middle of the aisle and crying, beginning to actually cry, because there wasn't just one, you know, can of corn on the the shelf. There were five or six different kinds of canned corn and different brands of canned corn on the shelf, and that there was canned vegetables at all or fresh vegetables and in abundance, and the bread, and the different foodstuffs that if, if she were living, you know, back in her her city in Poland at that time, uh, she could show up to the store and there wouldn't maybe not be bread at all. And you'd be, you'd be lucky that there would be uh, canned vegetables, let alone fresh vegetables. And she was thinking of her family stuck back there in Poland, with the privations that they had to live under under a, under a communist regime, and I've I've heard this story from many different people that when refugees uh, or those lucky enough to get out of uh, Eastern Bloc countries and came to the United States, uh, that they were overwhelmed by the abundance, especially since they were, you know. They were told there. I mean, let's face it. We had propaganda about them, but they had propaganda told about us, and uh, it just flew in the face of everything that they were taught about the United States and 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 told about the economic system over here. 
So from our perspective, or at least from my perspective in 2021, looking backward, socialism and communism doesn't work on several different levels. Several different levels. It's interesting, in Benson's book, he takes for granted that even though this is a communist society, there are still great technological advances, and that actually, in his in his vision, communism does actually supply, or seemingly supply, the earthly utopia that it promises. Now, in correspondence he did with people, friends, while he was writing the book, he was very careful to say that he wasn't really all that interested in you know, the technological predictions. That he was keeping all those things very general. And that those those weren't the most important, you know, predicting what kind what telecommunication was going to be like in a hundred years or what air travel was going to be like in a hundred years wasn't the most, you know, what wasn't his top priority. Uh, it was more to talk about what the spiritual state of human beings were going to be. And so if if you look at like for instance the the Modes of transportation he describes are basically overglorified uh, blimps, uh, zeppelins. Uh, the the telecommunication that he, you know, the forms of communication that he describes are, you know, were basically uh, would have been considered quaint even by, let's say, the standards of the next decade. Okay, let's say by the nineteen twenties. Any technology that he's describing would have been already outstripped, you know, that what he was describing uh, for 100 years in the future. Uh, but again, that wasn't his concern. What he, what he was trying to say is that even though uh, this system may indeed supply the material benefits that it's promising, uh, it's still leaving human beings empty. And it's still setting up false gods that deny the spiritual, because the essentially what he is talking about in the in the book is the the rise of the Antichrist, and you know the Antichrist, who the Antichrist really is, is someone who is going to demand to be worshipped like God, like that sort of. How the novel is being set up is that this this political figure from the United States, the senator from the United States, comes out of nowhere, seemingly miraculously uh, solves this crisis uh, in Asia that looked like it was going to lead to you know world war, and uh, then is basically proclaimed uh, the president of Europe. Uh, and worship is banned, Christian worship is banned, Catholic worship is banned, but a new form of worship is going to be inaugurated. And it's sort of kept secret somewhat what this new worship is, what form it's actually going to take, and who exactly it is that's being worshipped. And in the end, it's, it's this president of Europe 
who is basically going to be setting himself up as the object of worship. And so Benson is more concerned with the spiritual state than the economic state. He, he views that the spiritual state of, of human beings is more important than their economic uh, or, or material state. And that's sort of the point that he is trying to make in his book. And it's sort of brought out in little ways. And one of the characters who begins the, the book uh, very much uh, in favor of the new regime, very much in favor of this new form of worship, uh, who eventually becomes disillusioned because she comes to understand that there is something more, but she can't quite get herself to accept it. But she feels this sort of existential angst within herself because while she wants to believe in this new world order and at first is running toward it, uh, in the end, it's leaving her empty. And sort of what happened, I won't go into what happens to her, but it, it's sort of sad what, what happens to her. Now, why do I kind of bring this up? I, 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 the reason why I, I bring it up is I think is we as Christians do need to get back to basics a bit. We have placed a lot of emphasis on the church's social teaching. And praise God, we, we should place a great deal of emphasis on the church's social teaching. It's been called the best-kept secret in the Catholic Church, or not just in the Catholic Church, but in, in the world, that the church over the last about 130 years has tried over time to develop a Christian response to the needs of our social life and economic life and to apply Christian principles to economics and politics without espousing a particular economic system or political system. The fact that we're, we're emphasizing this I, in and of itself I don't think is the problem. But I think in implementing it, we've bought into, whether we understand it or not, the communist critique and the socialist critique, which is that the economic is what has priority. The doctrine doesn't say that. The doctrine doesn't say that at all. But I'm talking about the way we have approached it. We have been listening for a very long time and been accused for a very long time of promoting an opium, a drug, that religion focuses us completely on the world to come as a way of anesthetizing us and drugging us from the problems that are happening here on earth, here and now. Now, I'm not going to say that's never happened, and I'm not going to say that certain preachers over the, over the years haven't used religion as a way of doing that. Nonetheless, we have moved now to another extreme. And that extreme is to sort of 
close off in our thinking and in our preaching the earth from heaven. Our hope, ultimately, is not that we're going to create a utopia here on earth. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in the world to come as Christ will recreate it, not as we will form it and we will make it. Very often when I read modern authors, and there's some modern, you know, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go too far deep into this, but when they talk about hope sometimes, it seems to be a hope in human progress and a hope in, you know, the the ultimate material well-being of human beings. Okay, with the formation of, of, of a just society by the grace of God, but nonetheless, it loses the focus that, 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 that work of building the earthly city is not going to end until Christ comes. That's when the end of history is going to come. It's not, it's not going to come by our own work and our own efforts. So yes, we do need to emphasize the social doctrine of the church, but it always needs to somehow be related to the whole gospel, to the entire gospel. That while we are committed to the here and now and to and and to helping to prepare the earth for the Lord's coming, that's exactly what we're doing. We're preparing the world for the Lord's coming and for his work of creating and making all things new in him. I think sometimes there are some within the church who have rejected what we call eschatology, Eschatology is the study of the fancy word for the study of the end times. We have rejected eschatology and really replaced it with a social justice curriculum. And I, I think that that does a disservice to both things. I think not having the whole picture and not beginning with the basics. That yes, we need to look at, at social structures. We do need to look at po uh, political structures. We do need to look need to look at economic structures. But the Lord came preaching a gospel of repentance for us as individuals first, and it's from individuals that systems are made. It is from individuals that economies are run. And we can't reform the economy. We can't reform the, the politics until we are reformed in our hearts. 
And when we stop saying, well, this is just the way it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. No, there is something you can do about it. Begin with you. Root out the injustice in your own heart. Root out the sin in your own heart. Make an examination of yourself and how you treat the people around you. And how you love or don't love God as you should. And then, if we begin with that, if we begin with the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then it all will all fall in place. But I, I feel sometimes that we're, in, in the name of being relevant, we're, we're skipping the Jesus part. We're skipping uh, the dying to self part and immediately jumping to wanting to uh, you know, change the world. But we're not going to change the world until we change ourselves. Let's do that first while we're preaching about the need for social reform and for social justice. So I'm not saying one or the other, but I'm saying it all has to go together. And it truly has to be seen as a seamless garment. Okay, that you can't really separate these things from one another. And if you do, you have something that's incomplete and truly irrelevant. Okay. So to to double back on on Lord of the World, while I, I think that, yeah, in, in many ways we, we I can read that book now and say, gee, uh he gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, I think at its heart, Benson gets a lot of things right, which is that we need to prioritize the spiritual over the corporal. We need to emphasize the reform of the individual and our own individual repentance. And then we can talk better about changing the system and reforming the economy and reforming uh, the government. Because w without that, without that personal reform, that personal commitment, then we're just dealing with laws and rules that are being imposed on people. And when you do that, it might, it might last for a while, but in, in the end, you're dealing with government by coercion and not really by, uh, by in a spirit of freedom and in, in a spirit of true justice. So I'm going to leave that right there. And so remember, this Friday, celebrate St. Joseph. <laughs> Some of you have uh, the tradition of the St. Joseph's table. It's very popular among uh, you know, the Americans of Italian descent. And, uh, but in general, whether you've got that particular tradition or not, uh, enjoy, celebrate. Yes, there's a time for fasting, uh, but there's also a time for celebrating. And we should not feel at all ashamed or uh, hesitant about taking this opportunity to celebrate St. Joseph, our uh, the universal patient, patron of the church, and of, in the end, you know, celebrating the great gift that God has given to us through him. And after that, yes, then we go back. Then we go back to our Lenten observance, and we uh, finish up our Lenten observance well. Uh, so I'll be back next week. God bless all of you. And uh, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. 
And just remember, God loves you very much. Bye-bye. I know I said bye-bye, but there is one more thing. <laughs> A little P.S. Um, here at the very end. Uh, this um, podcast is published through Anchor Podcast, the Anchor Podcast service. It's put up on Spotify. It's put up on several different outlets. It's on uh, iPod, excuse me, I, uh, Apple uh, Podcasts. I also take the audio and usually, you know, put it onto um, YouTube as well. The last couple of episodes, I've not been able to do that because I've been using uh, other softwares, uh, web-based softwares that on the one hand I find very convenient, but on the other hand don't allow me to actually you know, download the audio file and convert it and put it onto, uh, you know, into movie in order to then put it up onto, to, uh, uh, up onto YouTube. So if anyone has been, you know, any of you are YouTubers out there uh, watching this, I'm sorry that I've missed those couple of uh, episodes just because I haven't been, again, I have not been able to uh, uh, convert them into a into a uh, the proper kind of audio file that's compatible with um, with iMovie, uh, but I'm going to try to see if I can correct that in the future and make sure that these uh, episodes do get up onto YouTube as well. So again, uh, God love you, and I'll be uh, talking to you soon. Bye bye.